together. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Uh, second part of, of this verse, we'll take a look at where we left off last time. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19, um, Peter writes, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Let's, let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach this, Father. I pray, Father God, that I prepared it rightly, God. That I've prayed over it and studied over it, Father God. I've, I've mulled over it and sought your face, Father God, in every conceivable way, Lord. And that I'm ready to come in and talk about something, Lord, that I know, God, you've laid upon my heart, Father God. That you've burdened me with, Father. That you've given me great passion about. And I want to come in and talk about that, Father God, because there's a way forward for us that's so clear, Father. It's not broad, it's narrow as it should be, Father God, but it's it's laid out and 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 crystal clear to anyone who wants to see it, Father God. I want to talk about that today, Father God. I want to revel in it and find the glory of God in the fact that you've laid out such an exclusive path for those who are really willing to follow your truth, Father God. I want to do that. I want to I want us to walk that path together as God's people, Lord. And I want to see a reformation and a revival in the church that we've never seen, not just here, Father God, but everywhere, Lord, because the church is sick, Father. It's grown old and weary and it's father god it's distracted and it's it's got it's 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 putting its hopes and things it should never put its hope in lord and so i want to see god a a new church a revitalized church father god but i want to see an old church father god a church lord that's gone back to its roots not father god to some mistake made in the 60s or the 70s father god but a but a church father god that longs to be who it really should be in christ that goes all the way back to the gospel, Father God, and sees the gospel, Lord, not just as a key to open the lock of salvation, but as a roadmap to live an entire life. Father God, I want to see that. I want to see it begin today in our hearts and our minds, Father God. I know, God, that you are capable of doing this, Father God. I know, Lord, that you've laid this upon my heart, Father God, but I pray now that your people will hear your call. And I pray, Father God, that we'll answer Affirmatively, I pray for that today, Father God. I pray, God, the blood, God, is evident in everything that's said today. And I pray, Father God, that someone would find Christ today who has been lost forever, Lord. In the name of Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen. Um, look, the difference between realities and expectations is really kind of the crux or the center of the issue that the remaining part of this passage talks about. And we want to get to the meat of the passage. I mean, last time we needed to talk about that. That's something the church needs to hear. And we'll mention those truths again today. But more than anything, what Peter and other gospel writers who are so inclined and so geared will do is point us in a direction that we need to be walking. Um, We talk about it all the time and we share about this, but the reality is sometimes I think it just, it doesn't really sink in to where it needs to sink into. And what I mean by that, I mean what I'm saying is very simple, and that is that God saved us for a very specific purpose. And the purpose is to serve Him in a way that's defined by the Bible. To serve Him through holiness and to serve Him through obedience and to serve Him through through self-sacrifice to serve Him through active feet and active hands and active minds. That God saved us so that our lives would look like those that, that, uh, that the, the blood of Christ has purchased. That they wouldn't just 
fade back into the background. That they wouldn't, we wouldn't come to Christ somehow in some way at, at the foot of the cross and then blend back into the crowd. That we, wouldn't, that we would be distinctive and we would be separate and set apart the rest of our lives. I'll be honest with you, and I'm going to talk about it in just a minute. I think that's the difficulty right there. I think for the modern church, we are terrified of standing out. We want to be camouflaged believers. We want to blend in. We don't want people to know. Because we think that it will cost us. You know what? We're right. If the Bible's true, and it is, it should. The reason why it hasn't cost us yet is because we haven't been very distinctive. We faded in so easily. We become part of the uh, we become part of the background so quickly that we could never be identified. Look, as as believers, the words of Scripture are always expected to be the truth that sets us apart from the wickedness of the world around us. Simply put, if we want to know who we are, we are to be Bible believing people, men and women of the book, faith driven. Driven by what we know the Bible says. Paul explains that the church's, church labors and its struggles in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So therefore, if initially, as believers, we are a little afraid of what we're facing, makes sense. It makes, it makes, it makes total sense to, to the human side of us, to the, to the person we are. Because it is a crooked and twisted generation. And it's becoming more and more crooked and more and more twisted. It's not better than it was. In fact, I'll just say this, and I'll say this to everyone of any age. It was never good in our lifetime. I don't know when it was. But it's always been crooked and it's always been twisted. Going back to, Paul, to Peter's statement. So the first century A.D., Peter called the world a crooked and twisted generation. It's been true ever since. Philippians 2.16, the Apostle gives us the instruction that we, need, that, that we need in order to shine brightly as a beacon. When he writes this, he says, Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, I'll work backwards for just a second. I don't know if you face it or not, but that's my fear. For me, for us as a church, that's, the fear is that we're running and laboring in vain. Now, understand that. If you are running in the Bible's direction, if you're doing as the Bible commands, and you don't feel like it's working out as it should, like you're not as beneficial as you ought to be, you don't feel like there's fruit or profit where you think it should be, what I'm going to say to you is let God judge that. You just be obedient. You go the direction that Christ lays out. You run as hard and as fast as you can toward the goal that He has laid out for us. You do that and you let Christ determine the profit of your, of your labors. The thing I think He's warning us against is, is that we will labor for vain things. We will mistakenly chase those things that we've got no business chasing. And we will ensconce them in biblical truth, wrap them up in the Bible, and act as if they are pure, but at their heart they are corrupt. We spend so much time about talking about money and jobs and things like that, that to be honest with you, are necessary evils. We can, we're not communists. We don't live without money. We need the medium of exchange. We need to labor and work to serve and to, to take care of our families. 
But when it takes over, when it becomes my end, it's vain. It's, it's, it's something that God uses to feed my family. But when I start to care too much about it, it becomes an idol. And I start to labor on vain things. So his warning here is make sure we're laboring for those things, those things that God told us to labor for. And ignoring those things that come strictly from the world. The only way that we can be immune to the consequences of the torrent of catastrophe and devastation caused by human sin is to hold fast to the word of life. His words, Paul's words so clearly, hold fast to the word of life. Cling to the word of God as if it is your only deliverance because it is. Cling fast to the word of life as if it's the only meaning for your life because it is the only meaningful thing in your life. Hold fast to that word. The acknowledgement of Paul guides us to two essential facts of which we must be mindful as we consider Peter's words. Because in, in fact, these two passages say pretty much the same thing. We're going to look at it twice because it's that important. First, the only hope that we have is in desperately clinging to the words of life, the Bible and its gospel. That is our only hope. Cling to the gospel. Now I understand. It's, it's, it's a strange and funny thing. Because for so long we talked about the gospel in those simplistic, kitty VBS terms of ABC. I'm not denigrating. That's for children. It, it makes sense. It's just not for adults. We want little kids to understand it that way. But we want them to grow from that and not stop there. Part of the problem is the church kind of stopped there. And what the church saw as the gospel was really just the key that opened the door that allowed us to see all the rest of what the gospel really said. We're standing in the doorway that God wants us to walk through to this unbelievable life that we can live informed by the gospel in which the things of this world become steadily devalued in our lives. We care less and less about them till we wind up in that place where we can cast it all aside for the glory of God. He wants to grow the God. That, that initial gospel message is a seed that He wants to, wants to grow magnificently in our hearts. That's why it's been engrafted there. It's been tied on to our hearts so that we know how to live. So we won't live in futility and in frustration, in shamefulness and degradation, in bankruptcy. Because that's the way the world tracks, folks. That's where they're going. They lead a path that leads only to hell because every step is hell itself. Every step is agony and misery. And at the end of the night, they know that to be absolutely true. They're living it. They may not believe in our God, but deep down they believe in our hell. You know why? Because they're living out that hell every day. Every single day. Second, the parousia, the return of Christ. is a big Greek word, but it's such a beautiful word. The return of Christ for His people in order to establish a just and holy world order. I want you to understand that there's not one single verse of the Bible that should ever lead us to believe that a, that a just and a perfect and a holy um, government on this planet will ever be established 
until Christ returns and does it Himself. It's always going to be broken. It's always going to be like this. It's just showing its evil face now in a way it never showed it before. Society's showing how terrible it is in a way that it hid it under this veneer of civilization. It's never going to be civilized. It's always going to be barbaric. The Greeks and the Romans were catastrophically wrong. It will be civilized. And it will be holy. And it will be right when Christ comes back and does it Himself. And for a thousand years, He's going to show the world how it could have lived if it would bend the knee to Christ. He's going to demonstrate it. Because that's who our God is. It's the focus of all the efforts of God's people living in the final days. As God's people, understand the final days were inaugurated right there when Christ rose. We, we know we're living in the final days when He ascended to heaven. Understand this. People living in the final days are supposed to live absolutely obsessed with the fact that Christ is returning. We never turn our backs on that fact. We never think, oh well... No, we're, we're, we're wanting it to be today. We're hoping it can be today. We're praying. We are urging God that today might be the day. It is the seminal event in the history that we have left to live. The return of Christ for the good of His people. He comes for us. Paul reminds each of us that by focusing on the Word of God, by making it our daily bread and not an occasional feast. Those are pithy, pithy words and they're my words, but it's exactly how the majority of people live. The Word of God is not daily bread. It's for revival meetings or special occasions. It's become Thanksgiving feast. We don't do it every day, right? We think we weigh a thousand pounds. But God wants us to feast on the Word every single day. God wants us to deny other things to dine on the holiness of His daily bread. And because we are not feasting on that bread daily, we've started within church services to substitute human things for it. Because we, what we, don't, because we don't get it every day, we now think we can gobble it down all at once. And we're starting to demand it in ways, simply put, that are, that are ineffective and that are not what Christ wants. By allowing it to define our worldview and mindset in every circumstance. What I mean is that we think and we believe what the Bible states to be true on every issue. We'll be proud. Now, what he means there is confident that we have, we have lived righteously. We've lived the way God intends it. We can be confident that we have done what God commands. And not vain and ineffective in our striving for Christ. Vain and ineffective. Doing things we're not supposed to do. Living in ways that the world approves of, but we know deep down, we know from the Scriptures that God does not. Making excuses and rationalizing away. Saying, well, everybody does this and everybody does that. You're absolutely right. Everybody does and everybody's breaking the heart of God. It's not your job to do what everybody does. It's our job collectively to do what God demands. The truth stated here complements and it accentuates Peter's in our focal passage. In both instances, the church is defined by Bible-obsessed acolytes. True believers. True believers who have been radically changed by the gospel so much that we are now obsessed with the Word of God. You hear what I said? Obsessed. Not unfamiliar. Not indifferent. Not apathetic toward it but obsessed with the Word of God. That, that is biblical Christianity. There's no other kind. 
If it's in my life or in your life, it's wrong. Look, here's the thing. Who spend their lives like currency, laboring in the light of the coming of Christ. Now look, if this description sounds cultish, then it should sound that way. I'll just say this. If there's one issue we've got, is that if... Folks, if you're not pursuing Christ, they're not going to call you a cult. I'm here to say something. This is going to sound really controversial, but it's not really. I will say this much about the crazy cults. At least they're enthusiastic. At least they're committed. The church sleeps and they shout. The church doesn't care and they'll throw their lives away. We're the ones with the truth and we live as if it's nothing. As if it doesn't matter at all. When's the last time somebody denigrated us by calling us something like that? When's the last time somebody looked at us and said, are they really doing things right? Because they're so committed. And they're so enthusiastic. And they're so ready to serve. It really ought to be an insult to us that all the wrong people have gobbled that up. The issue in the modern church, the churches in which we labor, is that we're, not, we're afraid of not fitting in, into the world around us. We don't want to be seen as strange or different by our lost and worldly friends. We're obnoxiously fitting in when Christ saved us to stand out, to wreck the system or die trying. He, he raised us to be radicals like Him. Everyone in the first century who followed Him died, gave their lives for Him. And we think that somehow we can lead it in a pulpit and that's it. Somehow we can shove it away or stick it in a pocket or cover it in glass and say, just break glass in case of, of, of tragedy. We cry out to Him when we're sick and we cry out to Him when we're poor. But the reality is this, is He wants us ever crying out. He didn't save us to be like everybody else. That's an insult to the cross. The most radical single event in human history, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ for the sins of His people, has now led His people to live just like everybody else. It makes perfect sense that a radical event should spawn a radical people, right? That a radical event should lead his people to do the most radical of things. But in reality, we think somehow we can live it out just the way we did when we were lost, just in a, a more sanitized way. Christians are terrified of being seen as part of a cult or a sect. Paul and Peter insist that this is the only way to bring glory to God. If you're not drawing the ire of the government and drawing the ire of everybody around you, if you're not leading a life that's so insulting to the society around you, they think something's wrong with you, then you, we, us, by definition the church of the 21st century, are failing and failing miserably, walking a path that Peter and Paul laid out. That Christ blessed with His blood and that the martyrs have been the roadblocks upon in John chapter 5, verse 35, Christ Jesus sets the standard at John the Baptist, whose head would adorn a platter. And our desire is nothing other than to be a burning and shining lamp. That's what Christ called John, a burning and shining lamp. It was soon extinguished, but it burned as brightly as any in Christendom would. Because John would accept no other and Christ accepted no other. That draws men and women to the conflagration that blazes within them so they can rejoice for a while in our light. To draw men and women, church, we must burn with a searing feverishness that reveals to the world that we have found the only truth that saves. The gospel. And that we are awaiting the great 
coming of the only true God. Jesus, the God-man, for His only chosen people. Not only do we have the way to walk, but we have the final destination. And we point to the One who saved us, and not to some man that lies in a grave. Because that's the cult. That's the cult. That's a world scattered with wicked cults that worship dead men. We worship the living God. In 2 Peter 1.19, Peter closes this verse, our focal passage, by saying, To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But three of the most important issues to the people of God are revealed through this verse and supported by words of other writers like those of Paul that we just mentioned. First, the only hope for our faith and labor in a world of almost total darkness and terror is to pay attention to the prophetic words of the Bible. Knowing that it is a lamp shining in the darkest places. That's right. The Bible is all the help we need. And we don't need anything else. And we shouldn't seek anything else. The only illumination with the infinite candle power required to slice through the impenetrable darkness of a world constituted completely by sin is the Word of God expressed in the Bible. The only power that can slice through the wickedness of this world is God's terrifying Word. And it is terrifying to those who find themselves opposed to it. Only God's Word. Look, instead of trusting, excuse me, simply put, we're not dedicated enough to its truth and it shows here and in the Christian community abroad. Instead of trusting what the Bible says, like so many times in church history, Christians today are seeking a personal experience that we can see and feel and record over time-tested and verifiable encounter with God's holy and inerrant Word. Somehow the Word just isn't enough anymore. The Word, thus saith the Bible, doesn't rule. Thus saith the Bible, doesn't define. And thus saith the Bible, doesn't demand as it should demand in the heart of every single person who believes it. Every one of us transformed by the words of truth, by that engrafted word that saves the souls of men and women. Every one of us, our hearts should literally rise up in exultation at the very reading of the word of God. They are the words of life. They are hope for the lost and the dying only within the the words of Scripture. Instead of whooping and hollering over some supposed miraculous conversation or the inane babble of the charlatan, believers should become overwhelmed emotionally and intellectually by the Word of God and His promises to His people. I have never seen this more so, to be honest with you, in Baptist churches just like this. You bring somebody in, to be honest with you, and they'll tell a bunch of nutty stories about hunting deer or playing basketball or some nonsense like that. And they'll shout the name of Jesus a couple of times and everybody will fall over themselves amening. But you preach the Word of God and we sit there in stunned silence. You know why that is? Because so many people in Baptist churches today are children of ignorance and charlatans and not children of the Word of God. And that's the simple reality of it. We will celebrate what makes no biblical sense and isn't even founded in the words of God. And act like that is good. And sit there like the Bible's not the Bible. 
I'm going to tell you, when the Word of God is preached and the, and the Word of God is proclaimed, it ought to bring a stir to the heart of God's people. It ought to bring tears to our eyes and a shout to our mouths. But the reality is this, is it doesn't. Is it doesn't. You know, honestly, honestly, it has to be insulting to Christ that His Word is classically, classically preached in so many places and met with yawns and snores while light flat, lights flash and idols are waved and foolishness offered as preaching and people cheer the mistake and sleep through the authentic Gospel. Folks, I'm afraid, simply put, it is the great apostasy. It is the great apostasy that, that Paul spoke of. That people are being led astray by a pseudo-gospel that pleases their eyes and pleases their ears and makes them feel that they're okay. But the reality is it never saves a soul. It just condemns everybody who will sit there and listen to it. I'm here to say this right now in front of everybody. If you run a church that doesn't preach the gospel, knock the door down getting out. And don't sit there and hope it will get better. Don't. Go where the authentic gospel is being preached. Truly, we have lost our way in this country as a particular people, a set apart people, people ready for the coming of their king. Second, the word of God is a lamp shining in a dark place that the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a light to my feet, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. As Christ's chosen ones, we've gathered in the presence of the living God to celebrate His truth by praise and worship. And it's altogether good and right that we do this honorable and adoring duty. We sang the glory and love of God today. And we did it over and over and over again. It was so, so wonderful to do that. To sit here and sing what we believe. To sing what we preach. To sing what we stand for. So somebody looks at our, listens to our songs or, or reads our hymnal, they know exactly what we believe. That is right. That is the declaration of the love of God through the voices of His people. It is our sermon that preaches to the world. I, I, I love that. I'm so enthusiastic about that. However, we celebrate here the effectiveness of the Word of God in shining that light on the path on which we must walk as His sons and daughters. We sing it so that, so that one of us can stand before this congregation and preach it. And say, here's the light. Here's the light shining. It, it, it's illuminating the path. It's a runway that leads only to Christ. The parameters of faithfulness are established by the Word and taught and emphasized in the worship service. However, the Word of God preached and taught should produce in His people two aspects that are absolutely lacking. And I mean this so much. Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. Why is it that those who are right act like they're wrong and those who are wrong are convinced they are right? You have the, the saving Word of God here. You have heard it over and over and over again, from imperfect men, but called men. Imperfect men who pray and prepare and whose hands tremble when they deliver the Word that only God can give. Live like it. Don't live in, don't live in my shadow. Live in the shadow of the cross and the shadow of Christ. Don't, don't live like me. Live like the risen Savior. And exclusiveness. This word sets us apart. People are supposed to be able to tell. 
that we are different. And I might add, different on purpose. Not accidentally. Different because God claimed us out of darkness into light. As hard as it is to imagine, the true believers of God who are the most grounded in His Word and the most overwhelmed by gospel preaching are the least excited and most likely to be overcome by feelings of doubt and fear. Paul defines for us that those who have embraced the idea that the Word of God is the infinitely pure and incredibly true light that is the object of His people's dedication when he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We talk about seeking the face of Jesus. Absolutely that's seeking. But that face is found where? In the knowledge of the glory of God that resonates in illuminated hearts. Hearts illuminated by the very will and purpose of God. Your hearts have been illuminated by the Word of God and the Spirit of God through the will of God from the foundation of the very world. Light is shown in your heart and continues to shine through the Word. The Gospel is never a momentary experience, but it's a lifetime of luminosity, a lifetime of light, in which God's people live in the light of what saved them. In the depth of it, in the miracle of it, in the words of the cross, that's where we will build our home. In the very words of Jesus. Jesus is God the Son who took on the costume of sinful flesh so that He could fulfill the law by living perfectly. Answer for our sins by suffering and dying on the cross for every human being and then rise from the dead in His own power to establish a new covenant in His blood that atones perfectly and eternally for sins. The finished work of the cross saves you today. The gospel declares the hope that is in the Savior alone. And it comes into human hearts with a mandate to enjoy its glory by living focused on its truth. We, we've received in our, in our hearts the image of the cross as established by the gospel. And we will stay focused on the image of the cross the rest of our lives. Last. Zechariah's song of joy in Christ, recorded in Luke 1.78, rejoices by saying, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Christ Jesus is the sunrise. He is the dawning day. He is the true and not the false morning star. He is hope for which the church has always pined. The prophet Malachi describes the day of the return of our Lord. The parousia in Malachi 4.2 when he says, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now some, of us, some of us grew up on the farm. And you know what it's like. You know what it's like when, when spring was finally there. And those calves would be out kicking their heels. We're supposed to kick our heels. We're supposed to exalt our Lord so much in the truth that has saved us that it, it gets us excited in every bone and every fiber of our being. Something so much we can't hold back. Those calves can't hold back their excitement at the change in the weather. That winter's gone and spring is here. That the grass is going to be green. They can't hold it back. 
calves kicking in the stall. Anyone who's ever been around one knows exactly what he's talking about. About 20 years ago, Jeff Moore penned our response in these lyrics, and they capture the needs of every heart today when they say, So I kneel before you now. I surrender to your will. I'm living hidden in the hollow of your hand. You have placed within my heart, Lord, a vision and a faith. That is bigger than what I understand. So I pray in expectation with great anticipation. While we dwell in a world of pain, of heartbreak, suffering, horror, and strife, the promises of the Word are worth leaping over with the joy of the knowledge of Christ. We are not stranded here to suffer forever, forgotten, and afterthought. Instead, we are the children of the King. We are joint heirs. We are ambassadors of Christ. We're a royal priesthood and a holy nation who will focus forever on our Savior. We can survive anything and we will flourish when the world falters because we know from whence cometh our help. We know where to look. Our eyes are always to the east. They're always fixed on Jesus They're always concentrating on His Word and they're always seeking His face. We can and will take whatever the world hands out and we will be victorious in the Gospel. The Gospel that saved our fathers and our forefathers has saved us and is the truth that now defines us. And as a people, we're going to live like that. Let's pray together.